All right. Good morning. How is everybody? Good. Um, I'd like to go ahead and dismiss Blast right now. Um, you guys are actually going to go that direction, a little bit different. So if you're going to Blast, Cassie, that way, all the way in the back, and you'll go see Miss Denise right back there. A little bit different this morning. All right, so I missed, um, I missed the beginning. I would assume you guys talked about our team in Guatemala, right? No. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Well then, how about I do that? All right, so um, you guys probably remember that uh, things are a little different this morning. Uh, our, uh, our team from Family Bible Church is, uh, are they still in Miami, or do you think they're on their way? They're gone? They're in the air. Pretty cool. So they got to Miami early this morning. They left St. Louis uh, extremely early this morning. What time did they meet? 3 a.m., so that's, that's not even morning. I think anything before 5 a.m. shouldn't be considered morning. It's still nighttime for me. So, um, so they met last night. And um, so they're on their way to Guatemala. If you don't know about the team, I'll just share a little bit. They're heading down to uh, Guatemala to be a part of Adonai International Ministries, which is down there, which is the ministry run by the Ficker family, who um, you guys would know possibly Ryan and Katie, who uh, worship with us um, off and on for a long time and then very regularly for uh, probably a, a well over a year before God called them back to Guatemala. So they're building a hospital down there in an underserved area of Guatemala, and uh, so our team gets to go and be a part of that. So we're super excited about that. So uh, Bill gets to be a part of that this morning, so um, I get an opportunity to come and share a little bit with you guys, uh, which I'm excited to do. Um, To catch you guys up just a little bit, uh, many of you probably saw my middle boy fall on his face this morning, and uh, so I'm a little distracted. He's on his way to uh, the hospital this morning to possibly get some stitches in his lip. So uh, I encourage all of you, when you're running, don't have both hands in your pockets because your, your face will break your fall. And uh, so poor guy's got to go through that. So I uh, just want to take a minute and um, let's pray together before we get into God's Word this morning and um, just ask him to, to lead this process. Father, I thank you so much for uh, time together where we can weekly gather and uh, be challenged uh, by one another and uh, held accountable in a community um, where um, people see us and people um, can, uh, can remind us what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be living. Lord, I pray that this morning that as we open up your word, uh, or really as we continue to open up your word, we sang so much of your word already this morning, uh, but as we go through it and, uh, and really try to glean um, some truth from it, that you would be in that process, Lord, that your spirit would um, open our eyes. We know that things that are spiritual cannot be seen without eyes um, that you give us uh, to be able to see those things. I pray that you would uh, remove the hindrances and the distractions that we have, and uh, Lord, that you would be glorified through this, that we would come to know you in a greater way this morning and that we would bring you uh, honor and glory through this. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So this morning, I'm going to share, if you've got your Bible, start flipping to John. Uh, We're going to go to John chapter 12. And uh, as you guys know, this is, um, what is today? Palm Sunday. That's right. This is the the kickoff to what historically is called Holy Week. And uh, so we all know bits and pieces, and we all um, have some ideas about what that means. And I want to walk through that with you this morning a little bit as to um, the significance of Palm Sunday, because I grew up in church. Um, I was one of these blast kids, not in blast, but in a different church. And uh, I grew up with Palm Sunday, and I knew about Palm Sunday, but I didn't really know the significance of Palm Sunday until um, probably just a few years ago. And so somehow that missed me. So I want to take a little bit of time this morning 
morning and share some of those things that I've been learning over the years, and I seem to forget almost every year when we get to this point and uh, kind of celebrate that with you guys together this morning. So I'm going to read a few verses, and then... Um, and then we're going to bring in our, our special guest this morning. So uh, John chapter 12, we're going to read verses uh, 12 through 19, and it says this. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. And for this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you, are not, that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to bring forward our BLAST students. If you guys could come right on up here, and if you want to come right through the middle here, and we're going to get the Palm Sunday experience. I know everybody always looks forward to this. And um, so I want you guys to come all the way forward. Yeah, that's right. So show us how you, how you wave the palm branches. And as you're walking, I want you to say, Hosanna! Hosanna. Let's do it again. Hosanna, everybody! Hosanna! That's right, it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Nice job, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Brandon, you have to stand up straight when you wave a palm branch for Jesus. He's a hunchback. All right, thank you, guys. Give him a round of applause. Nice job, kids. All right, so they're going to head back, and they're going to do their own time of study and uh, learning about Palm Sunday. So uh, this morning, what I want to talk to you guys about is, uh, I want to talk to you about, uh, kind of the title would be Great Expectations. I want to talk about um, the, the chasm that sometimes forms uh, between our great expectations and God's greater purpose. And I'm going to talk to you about three things this morning. I'm going to talk to you about our expectations, um, our expectations in life, our expectations of Christ. We're going to look at, um, at, at the first Palm Sunday. We're going to look at the triumph triumphal entry, and we're going to look at what expectations of the people that had gathered and, were, and, and welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, what kind of expectations they had. Uh, the second thing I'm going to talk to you guys about is our response, because obviously it's always important, our response to those expectations and our response to what's happening around us and what the Lord's doing. And then the last thing I want to talk about is His purpose, uh, because His purpose is the most important of all of those three things. His purpose is, is uh, the most important, and that's what we want to really dwell on. So as we get started this morning, we're going to talk about our expectations. Now, um, just to kind of set the stage for expectations, this is what I mean, um, such as uh, we all have expectations of just about everything in our life, and those kind of get us into trouble. So let's just say um, I've worked all day, and I drive home, and I'm driving home, and I'm thinking, I just, I can't wait to get home, and I can't wait to have dinner uh, with my family, and just kind of settle in and enjoy a nice time together. So I pull into the drive, and, well, we don't have a drive. I pull into the backyard, and, and I get all my stuff together, and I, and I crack that seal on the door to step out of my, of my truck, and all of a sudden, I can, I can smell it. You know, if you don't work outside of the home, this may not connect with you, but if you do, I open it up, and I smell it, and I can smell hot food. 
And in my life, that's a good thing. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I, I, I enjoy food. I enjoy eating food. And you know what I really enjoy? is hot food. When I get home, if the food's not hot, that's not dinner. I'm not some kind of male chauvinist pig. That's just how I am. I, I want a nice, hot meal. So, so I crack that door, and I, and I walk into my yard, and I can smell it. And so my mind just starts going, and my expectations start growing, right? And I'm thinking, what's it going to be? You know, is it going to be meatloaf, or is it going to be some kind of, like, hot soup, or is it going to be, you know, something in the oven that, you know, I have to open the oven and look. You know, I'm getting excited, and my stomach's, you know, going, all right, here we go, buddy. Let's go, let's go get dinner. And I walk up to the porch, and I'm smelling it, and I open up the door, and I put my key in, and I kind of look in the kitchen, and things aren't quite looking good, and I, and I open that door, and then I realize that those wonderful smells and everything that I've been experiencing are coming from my neighbor's house. Now, you guys know I'm married to, I'm kind of married to Superwoman, okay? So, like, she's awesome. And she's not here, so, you know, I can, I can say that, and she, she won't hear it. But um, the thing about Superwoman is, if you've ever watched any of those movies with Superwoman, you've never seen her with three little boys, right? She doesn't have kids. Now, I, I was kind of thinking about, for my wife, sometimes, you know those days, if you're a stay-at-home mom or if you're a mom at all, you know those days where, like, those three little kids are kind of like your kryptonite, right? They, they just completely weaken you. They take everything out of you. You know, it's like you're, you know, I come in and every once in a while there's those days where Kara's just kind of in the corner, you know, like kryptonite. She's, she's completely shut down. And so I walk in and I see on the counter that there's like, you know, the jar of peanut butter with the knife in it. And there's, you know, a jelly jar next to it and an open loaf of bread. And I realize that my expectations of this great meal sitting down and how was your day? How was your day? And, and great, great. You know, the kids have been wonderful and we got all our stuff done. It's not going to happen. Like I'm going to have a peanut butter sandwich. I'm probably going to make myself, and the kids have been atrocious and probably are already in their rooms, you know, in their, in their beds ready for, you know, night-night time because they've been terrible. And those days happen on occasion. And now, so my response to my great expectations is very critical and very key because if I come in and I respond by, you got to be kidding me. What, what in the world? I've been working all day and I come home and this is what I get? You know, if my response to my kids is, thanks a lot, buddies. Thanks for ruining my night. Thanks for, you know, messing around all day and not doing what you were told and not letting mom cook us dinner. Nice job, boys. You know, that could, that could be my response. And then from that response, it sets a stage for the entire night and probably into the next day. So my response also could be, oh, man, they have had a rough day. And it's my job as a dad to come in here, and now I'm home, now I'm present, and i got to be present, i gotta, I got to come in. and All right, I got the baby. You know, I got the boys. You go take a hot bath. That part hasn't happened yet. That's a good thought to remember. That would be cool. Okay, that's, I'm, learning, I'm learning with you. That didn't even cross my mind. So, all right, hot bath. I don't have a pen. Um, that's, that's cool. So, so my response is key in that situation. And, of course, the last thing, carrying it all the way through, his purpose you know, what is his purpose? Because sometimes we say, oh, I don't really know what God wants. I don't know, you know, really what his plan is, what his purpose is. Well, that's a pretty easy one because Scripture tells me exactly what I'm supposed to be as a husband and as a father. You know, his, his purpose for me is to come into that home and be the man that I'm called to be and handle that situation rightly. Now, if I don't respond the right way, I might be missing his purpose for me as a husband and my whole family misses that as well. So that's what I'm talking about with those three things of our expectation, moving into our response, and then moving into his purpose. 
So let's dig a little bit deeper into John chapter 12 that we read before, and I want to look at a few of the, uh, a few of the important components of uh, the triumphal entry here with Christ and kind of break that down so we can remember and reflect on that together. So let's start back at the beginning of uh, chapter, tw- uh, excuse me, at verse 12. It says, uh, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they, and they cried out. Um, and we'll, we'll read that part again here in a minute. So let's set the stage here. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and it's a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal because everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows that Jesus is coming. Now, if you remember, you know, in the early parts of the Gospels, Jesus started with just walking down the road and calling out a person at a time. Maybe two people here. You know, and then one here, and then maybe some brothers here, and he started to, you know, build up this, this team of followers. And it was really cool to watch how he did that. And then as he went, remember, what was his first miracle? The water into wine, right? And uh, do you remember, whenever that happened, do you remember him going, all right, go tell your friends. Hey, go proclaim it from the mountaintops. No, he was pretty hesitant, wasn't he? And he kind of got onto his mom there and he said, this, you know, my time has not come yet. Jesus started quiet. He started small, as small as he could, being, you know, the Savior of the world, being perfect. I would assume that his life was never quiet because people are always going to be drawn to that. Um, uh, but at this point, he's walking in Jerusalem and it's a big deal because all of those things, almost all of those things have already happened. Those miracles, um, those, those people, you know, those throngs of people coming around him where he got to the place where he couldn't go into all these places because of, of a couple things. One, because the, the crowds were massive. You remember there were times he had to put himself out on a boat to get away from the people so that he could teach them. You know, he went up onto mountains, you know, onto, onto hills to teach and to proclaim who he was and what God's purpose was. So at this point, he had done all these things, and it was, I think it's interesting to see um, all the way down in verse 17. It says, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. So there was a lot of different groups of people that were there that day when he was entering Jerusalem, and one of those groups of people is specifically mentioned is those who were there the day he raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, if you look back before that, in verse 10, we didn't read it, but uh, 9 through 11 is about a plot to kill Lazarus. This is one of those things that as I'm reading, as as I'm studying, I had forgotten about this. Verse 9 says, A great many Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. So Lazarus was there, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So I think all these things start to set the stage for what's happening and who these people are. These people are converts. These are people who were following the Jewish religion, following the Jewish leaders, kind of, you know, fitting into that mold, and then Jesus came along and upset everything, right? He came in and he raised Lazarus from the dead, and now all of a sudden people are going, wait a minute, you guys are over here telling us we have you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of laws that we have to live by and do everything perfectly, and then if we do everything perfectly, we might be able to access God. And it was all about rules and regulations, and now Jesus is coming in and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And he was raising people from the dead and making a huge difference. And these people had changed. And so, of course, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders are not happy right now. So he's coming into this city, and that's one of the groups of people, is the people who are passionately following him. And then you've got other people who are there. You know, with anybody comes controversy. You know, look at all the, the presidential candidates right now. They bring in a group of people, and it's a bunch of supporters, and it's a bunch of people that don't want anything to do with them. And they come out in numbers as well. So it's a mixed crowd. There's a lot of different things happening here. The first thing I want to break out is in verse 13, uh, where they took the branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, I want to make sure that we don't get caught up in religious terms uh, because it's super easy to do that. Okay, honesty time. How many of you sing Hosanna, Hosanna, and don't really know what that means because it's just a religious term that you've heard? Nobody? Okay, maybe. All right, I see a few. That's good, that's good. I know, it's, it's, we just, it's kind of circular reasoning. We sing it because it's something about worship, and, well, what does it mean? Well, it means a, a word that we worship with, right? But what does it mean? Well, it's a, a term we use in worship, right? But what does it mean? Well, it's a term we use in worship. Like, it just goes around and around and around. We don't really always understand those things. Not that that's necessarily a problem, but I think it's really good to be able to know what those things mean. So, um, the first thing I want to talk about is um, the branches, and then also uh, the coats that were laid on the donkey's colt that he was riding on. Now, this passage doesn't say anything about um, coats being laid down, right? How many of you have heard before that they put don their coats on the donkey and then their, their clothes on the ground? How many of you have heard that before? Okay, that's it. It, probably most of you know, but that's because this story appears in all four of the Gospels. Now, there's not a lot of times where a story appears in all four of the Gospels. Sometimes it's in this Gospel and this Gospel. Most of the stories are in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels, um, but this one is specifically in all four Gospels. So, we get different elements of the story in each one, which is really cool. So, the disciples, when they went into the town, as Jesus uh, asked them to do, they found the donkey and the donkey's colt. They brought it. They put their clothes on top of it. And then as the people were welcoming him into the city, they're laying down palm branches, and they're laying down their cloaks and their clothes. Why is that? Why is that? There, one of the reasons that I thought of is… Um, have you ever seen, like, the old movies, you know, the old, like, the chivalry where there's a puddle? and the man takes off his coat and lays it down so the woman can walk across it and not get wet. Like, you know, we don't do a lot of that anymore. We just say, hey, honey, walk over there, and I'll walk over here, right? And, you know, that's kind of missing. But it's that, it's that honor, it's that respect to be able to say, you know, Jesus, you're, you're our king. You know, you, you, you need something to separate you from this. You know, donkeys aren't necessarily like the cleanest animals, right? They're not necessarily like this, this, this holy animal that, you know, it's, it's just kind of like a, a, a donkey, you know, if you're going to sit on a donkey, you probably want something to separate you. So they, they put their, their own clothes. They kind of take that sacrifice of, you need this more than I do because you're, you're, you're much more important than I am. You know, you, you, there's something special today. And they put that down. And as they come and the people take branches off of the palm trees and they lay them on the road and they lay their coats down, you know, that's, that's a sign of this utter respect and adoration for the person who's coming. It's this beautiful sign. Now, the palm that's mentioned in verse 13, palm, uh, all through um, this period of time, palm always has, um, always has, always was used as a description of a few different things. Um, one of those things is triumph. 
Um, when, when kings would come, when they've conquered, when uh, you know, they've, they've returned from battle, palms are used to signify that, that triumph. Uh, it's used for victory, um, to, to recognize victories. Uh, in the Egyptian culture, um, they used palms to signify eternal life. Um, uh, there were, you know, kings that have been, you know, that have been uh, found through archaeology that have, you know, multiple palms, and they're remembered as this, you know, this king was recognized with this many palms. Uh, palms were something that was signified as, as something that had to do with victory or triumph. And so there's meaning in the palm. It's not just because that was the most readily available thing. Uh, it was because in that culture, that was something significant. And so it's not something we just throw away and say, oh, well, we didn't find palms this Sunday, so I guess we can use, you know, some ferns or something like that. Like, it's palms uh, because they were recognizing uh, that Jesus had triumphed and that Jesus was victorious. And they laid those things down and they waved them in the air to recognize him as the coming king. Also in verse 13, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So we've got to break down Hosanna. Uh, Hosanna is pretty simple. Hosanna is, um, is uh, two Hebrew words that are put together. There's, uh, you know how sometimes there's a Hebrew word uh, that's you know, this, and then the English translation is this, and they're not very similar, but you can kind of see what the root is. This, is. this is a pretty easy one. It's two words that you know, are put together to say Hosanna, and uh, it means it's, it's kind of an intense, an emotional cry that says, save, we pray. Those are the two parts of the word. Save, we pray. So as they're saying Hosanna, they're crying out to Jesus saying, save, we pray. Save, we pray. They're praying for salvation from Jesus. Not necessarily yet in the way that we're praying, save, we pray to Jesus. But they're praying that Jesus would save them from what's going on in their society, in their culture, and in their city. Save, we pray, intensely and emotionally. Now, uh, the last one I want to talk about here is in verse 14 and 15. And it says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, or as the other, uh, the other three Gospels tell us, uh, he said there was a donkey. Go find the donkey in a colt to the disciples. And once you find him, if anybody asks you, where are you going with that? You say, the Lord needs this, and they'll let you go. And so sure enough, the disciples went out, they found the donkey and the colt, and they went to untie it, didn't ask permission. They just said, this is what Jesus told us. And the people said, what are you doing? You can't just take that. And they said, the Lord needs it. And the people said, okay, have it. So then they bring it back, and we pick it up in verse 14. Jesus sat on it, for it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, the cool thing about this passage is the people um, are not just yelling out random words like, uh, let's just get together and what do you guys want to say? You want to say like, Yahoo or, or what? You know, oh, how about Hosanna? Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, good word. You know, they didn't do that. Uh, these people that were there knew the scriptures and these things come from scriptures. You should have a footnote in verse 13 um, that tells you that what they're doing there is they're quoting from Psalm 118. They knew that. They were quoting it. They were recognizing it. Also in verse 15, there should be a footnote there for Zechariah 9.9, something that they knew, something that they were applying to the situation. So Jesus came in sitting on a donkey's colt. How many of you have been up close and personal with a donkey before? Yeah, all right, yeah, a few, a few. Um, so donkeys, you know, don't really strike fear into the heart of anybody, do they? 
Like, have you ever seen anybody go, man, I saw this scary donkey the other day. Man, it was like this big, and, and it was just kind of menacing, and I didn't really want to go pet it because it just was, you know, it was just kind of this, this animal had so much strength in it. Like, you don't hear that. You say, man, I saw this donkey, and he was so chubby. Like, he was, you know, huge, and he had these stubby little legs and these big ears, and I just wanted to cuddle him, right? Like, that's a donkey. They're just kind of this awkward animal. We all love them. But, but I think it's important to recognize that Jesus chose this. Obviously, it was chosen years ago in the Old Testament. And there's a reason behind it, and I want to talk about that. Um, the, a lot of times in this culture, when a king would come, they would come, uh, if they were coming into a city, uh, the city would recognize them, and they would come in, in in two different ways to signify that they were there um, to conquer. They were there for war. They were there to say, mess with us and uh, we will destroy you. Um, in this time, remember, Alexander the Great had been doing unbelievable things in the area, and all of it had to do with bloodshed. Um, he was conquering. He was taking. Uh, it was a, a very, very bloody, gory time, and a lot of these people knew that. And so let's, if Alexander's forces were coming in, the commander would come in on like a war horse is what they called it. And the war horse I've seen in movies, and I would expect the war horse, when I picture it, I picture it as, as black, you know, and it's got black eyes, and it's huge. You know how some of those horses have hooves that are just ginormous, and you just look at it and go, that is a beast of an animal. You know, it's, the muscles are rippling, and, and like that, that's a war horse. They would come in, and that would tell the people as the king was coming, all right, you know, I'm coming, and it's not going to be pretty because I am in control of this situation, and I bring, uh, if, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to bring bloodshed. The other way that they could come in is in chariots. You know, obviously chariots um, are made for war, and um, that's not the way that Jesus chose to come in. He didn't say, okay, I'm coming in as king. I'm coming in to be recognized, to go before these people and say, this is who I am, and this is why I'm here. He came in on a donkey, and the donkey was used in that culture to signify peace, and I think that's the main thing we want to focus on, is that Jesus came into the city as king, but he came in with the expression of peace. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, because when Christ came in and brought, brought peace, he also was bringing peace to us at the same time. And I think that's an important point. Uh, I want to move on to our response, but the last thing I want to share with you is a quote that I read this week that I really liked, because as we're talking about the expectations of the people and we see these things, and we hear these words. When I was growing up, I thought to myself, these people got it. These people knew that this was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was coming into the city to die on a cross in a few days, and then after three days to be raised to new life for the forgiveness of all of their sins, and that then he would go and he would be with his Father in heaven, and that he would await to return and take his people to himself I thought that they had that figured out. I thought that they knew all of those things were going to happen. And then I come to find out through reading this and through the next few series of events that happen is they didn't get it. They didn't understand what kind of king Jesus was coming to be. I and mean, we've heard it before as a reminder, the people were expecting Christ to come in and to save them as a political leader. This, this big to-do in the streets of Jerusalem was the community coming in and basically having this public coronation of their king. This quote that I read says, The crowds that day looked for Messiah, who would, rec who, excuse me, who would rescue them politically. 
would free them nationally, but Jesus came to save them spiritually. And I think that's the big difference in the expectation of the people that day. And our next uh, point, which is the response that we're going to look at, is the crowds were recognizing Jesus, the Messiah, who was going to rescue them politically. He was going to come in. He was going to change everything that was happen- happening in this, in this city. And we know what was happening with the chief priests. We know what was happening with the government. We know that times were, you know, there was a lot of bloodshed and there was a lot of things that were happening. You know, they were being taken out of their city. Their city had been destroyed. They had rebuilt it. And the people were expecting that he was going to be the political leader to change everything. They also thought that he was going to free them nationally. He was going to come in and bring that freedom that they longed for, freedom from the oppression, freedom from the Babylonians, freedom to where they could reign, um, that he could reign in their city and they could worship the way that the God of the Old Testament had told them to worship, which had been taken away from them for so long. That's what they were expecting. But they failed to realize that Jesus came in that day in order to save them spiritually and be the king of their hearts not the king of the city of Jerusalem. I want to look at uh, four responses based off of those expectations. So just put yourself in that place. Imagine that you're there. Imagine that you've been hearing all these things. You've been hearing about Jesus. You've been in the hoopla of who this guy is, and he's coming into the city, and you see him, and you see people. I would assume they were bowing to him. They were laying these things out. They were recognizing him, and you're there. Think about what your expectations would be. What would Jesus' next step be? He's riding into the city. My expectation would be he's going towards something important. You know, he's coming in. He's probably going to go towards, you know, if it's, uh, you know, if it's more like a, a religious thing, he's probably going to go towards the temple. Um, if it's more of a political thing, he's probably going to go um, to the ruler of that city and, and meet with them or even just go in there and kind of brash down the doors and say, here I am, I'm the king, the people chose me. Like, those are some of the moves that I would expect him to make. Um, but he didn't make those moves. I w- the first group that I want to talk about is the disciples and their response. If you want to flip over to Luke chapter 22, because I think Luke gives us a pretty good indication of how these people responded. So some things have happened since, uh, since he came into the city. Uh, he did a little bit more teaching. He talked to the Pharisees. They had some run-ins. Uh, the plot to kill Jesus has happened. Uh, Judas has decided to betray him. Uh, he came in. He instituted the Lord's Supper. They had the, uh, the, the Last Supper together in the upper room. And then Luke chapter 22 finds us uh, in the garden. And that's what I want to look at because um, he goes into the garden with his, um, with his disciples. And in verse 39, it says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then it says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. So imagine, you know, some of us can throw stones farther than others, but it's stones throw away, so not too far away. Okay, so the disciples have a choice here. They're, they're responding. This is in the, you know, this is kind of that raw time of Jesus has come in, and they've seen him do things that maybe they didn't expect. And, and um, so he takes them to the garden, and if you remember when he's praying, it's not just like a casual 
I'm going to come in, we're going to do a little prayer time, and then we're going to go off and see, you know, what happens after that. Like, this is a very solemn time for Jesus. And I know that these guys knew that this was a very heavy time. He had tried to tell them multiple times, this is what's going on, this is what's going to happen. Um, but remember, they, they didn't quite get it. They had their expectations. So the response this day, as he says, pray that you don't enter into temptation, he goes and he prays, and their response was what? What is it? sleeping, right? They were sleeping. The response to Jesus in this time, as he tells them, please guard yourselves against temptation. This was an important time. He wants them to pray with him, and they fall asleep. Laziness. That's the first response that I have to, that I have to think that we need to think about in our own lives. When we get our expectations up as to what the Lord is doing, one way that we can respond to those temptations or respond to those expectations is to just become lazy about it. When we think that God is working a, a, one way, I'll give you an example. A lot of times this hits home with me in job changes. Um, whenever I really think that the Lord is moving, when, when, I'm, when I'm trying to change jobs or I'm looking for a new job and multiple times over the years, I've gone, this is it. This is it. The Lord is working. I'm talking to this person, and, and, and then my expectations start spinning and start kind of going out of control. Does that happen to you? Where you start going, okay, Lord, you're going to put this in my path, uh, and then I'm going to do this. And, and I'll tell you, on, you know, I, I just left my job about three weeks ago, and I did this, and I said, Lord, I think I know what you're doing here. And my mind started going, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to work here for this period of time, and during that time, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to take this step, and then all of it's going to come together, and it's going to have a big bow at the end, and it's all going to be great. And then the Lord came in and said, mm, no, not even close. Missed it by a mile. I wasn't doing those things, but my expectations were up here. So sometimes our response to those could be just, just laziness, apathy, falling asleep, not really caring, going, you know what, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, so I'm just going to sit back and I'm just going to not pay any attention, just not going to care. The disciples decided to go to sleep. That was most important to them, the, the physical things that were happening while Jesus was, you know, praying and the sweat was coming out of him as if, as if it was blood. And he was, he was kind of torturing at this point, knowing what was coming, knowing what was going to happen on Friday. The next response I want to look at is the public's response, because this is, this is a crazy thing. Remember, this is a span of just a few days here. Sunday, he comes in, and then remember, we've got Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, where is, is Holy Week, you know, there's different names for them. We don't always you know, do a whole lot with them. But remember, Thursday is um, Maundy Thursday, we call it, which is a time of reflection where we look at the Lord's Supper. Um, he washed his disciples' feet. So somewhere in this time frame of just a few days, all of these things happen, and that was the response of the disciples. Let's look at the response of the crowd in general, um, and that's in Luke chapter 23. So let's flip over there and look and see what the people decide to, uh, how they decide to respond to him. Uh, in the beginning, Jesus is handed over to Pontius Pilate. Okay, he's been taken into custody. In the garden, he was taken into custody. The king that they were convinced was going to save them and change everything has been taken into custody. Uh, verse 6, he faces Herod. He's being tried at this point. As he's talking to um, uh, Pilate in verse 13, uh, Pilate, uh, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, he said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. 
And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserves death that has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. In verse 17, for it was necessary for him to release to them one, uh, to release to them at the feast. Verse 18, here's the, the critical point. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into the prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Verse 20 says, Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! The response of the people uh, was to scorn Jesus. Their expectations on Palm Sunday was to worship and to adore and to recognize. And they were connecting him with the Old Testament prophecies. And they were recognizing him as their political leader, the one who was going to save them. And a few days later, it turns completely from not even an apathy of, ah, we were wrong. Ah, he's not really doing what, it, what he said he was going to do. Ah, you know, we really thought he was going to come in and make a big difference. And now he's, you know, being beaten and he's in prison. And um, no, you know what? We don't even want him back. Just keep him. We'll take Barabbas. We'll take the one who started the rebellion and, you know, was convicted of murder. Send us him put Jesus on the cross. Can you imagine the change? Put yourself there in the worship mode and a few days later realizing that your expectations weren't met and you turn to open scorn. Scorn is, um, is an open dislike or a, uh, or a contempt for another person. They went from adoration and love to complete to contempt for him and wishing him to die the most cruel death uh, that was known to mankind, and in my opinion, has been known to mankind. If you've listened to um, any teaching on the, the, the uh, crucifixion of Christ or the, the crucifixion of the Romans, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's the worst thing that you can imagine. And that's how much they hated him at that point, in just a few days. Number three, I want to look at a specific disciple. Let's look at Peter. So we've got Peter in the garden. We're in verse uh, 54 of Luke chapter 22. And you guys all know the story about Peter. So um, uh, Peter at this point, it says in 54, having arrested him, they, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed at a distance, probably wondering, you know, at what point Jesus was going to change all this. When they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat among them and a servant girl Seeing him, as they sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him, but he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And after a while, another saw him, and they, and, uh, they say, You are also of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Verse 59, After an hour that passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was also with him, for he, he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I do not know him. What are you saying? And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Man, can you imagine what that felt like? 
I had forgotten that, that the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus turned and looked at him and recognized. Peter's response to all of this, Peter's response to the confusion and the unmet expectations is, the sh- is, is shame for who Jesus was. He was scared and he was ashamed and three times he had the opportunity to speak up and to say, yes, I am, even to be honest, yes, I am, and I am confused. You know, that, that might have meant a lot for Peter. That might have meant Peter's life. It might have meant Peter's freedom. Uh, but three times he was too scared and too shameful to recognize it. Same thing with us. That's an easy one, right? How often are we too ashamed to open our mouths and say, no, this is who my, my Jesus is? How many times are we too scared to open up our mouths and to take a stand and say, you know what, I don't always know exactly what's going on, and I know my expectations of who God is aren't always met. You know, put it in in my situation, you know, if I would have said, hey, you know, this is what the Lord's doing, I'm super excited about it, and then all of a sudden the tables are turned and it's gone for me to be scared and be able to say, oh, I thought Jesus was working, but I hope nobody asks me about what I said because obviously he's not working. You know, we have to be able to stand strong and say, I know that the Lord's plan is good, and I don't understand it all the time, but I trust him. Peter gets there, but it takes a little bit of time. The last one I want to look at is in um, Luke 24, where I brought you earlier, and this makes a lot more sense. Because this is uh, after Jesus has returned. He's been raised, and he's revealing himself to different people, and I love this story. It's such a good one. Um, this is uh, verse 13. As they're walking along the road to Emmaus, um, there were two disciples. And um, in verse 17, Jesus says, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And I like this because this very clearly tells us what these disciples were doing. They were walking along the road and they were sad. They were disheartened. Now, Jesus had rose from the grave. This is the crazy thing. They knew about the reports of Jesus being raised from the, from the grave. They knew it, but they were still sad. Can you imagine that? Can, don't you think they would just be like overwhelmed with joy and, you know, and cheering and walking down the street triumphal? You know, our Christ has returned, but they were still struggling to understand what was going on. And the cool thing about this is Jesus comes beside them, and, he, and he's veiled from them. They, they don't know who he is. And he's talking to them, and they're saying, oh, well, haven't you heard about what's been going on? And our Jesus came in, and then they killed him, and, you know, we just don't really know what's going on. And some people are saying that he's raised from the dead, and he opens up the Scripture to them. Not this, because they didn't have this. But he goes through, from the beginning through the end of the Old Testament, and he lays out the gospel for them, tells them everything about what's going on, And then all of a sudden they see that it's him and he's gone on to his next assignment on earth. And they look at him and they look at each other and they go, that was Jesus, how did we miss it? For our hearts burned as he was telling us about Moses and the prophets and revealing all of these things. What a beautiful moment for these disciples who even though they knew what was happening were still with these unmet expectations were responding in sadness. And Christ had to come and and manifest himself to them and talk to them and reveal to them what was going on. The last thing I want to share with you guys today is his purpose, because that, as I mentioned, is the ultimate goal of everything that we're doing here, is understanding what his purpose was. So what was his purpose in coming into the city? Was it to confuse the people? 
Was it to give them false hope? Was it to set them up for something that he thought was going to happen? Maybe if I go in there and they, they'll proclaim me king and I won't have to die on the cross? Obviously not. Last passage we're going to look at is in Zechariah 9.9. So if you don't know Zechariah, just start flipping back just a little bit, and um, you'll see Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament, and then you'll see Malachi, and then you'll see Zechariah. And this is one of the passages that was mentioned in uh, Luke when we were read, or in John when we were reading it. And this is one that they referred back to. Uh, one of the passages that I cling to in my life is... Um, Romans 8, 28, you guys probably know it, but it says, um, for all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is uh, kind of an anchor in my life telling me that no matter what's going on, I know that he's working it out for good. Even if my expectations are not met, even if my expectations are I'm going to stay in this job until I retire, or even if my expectations are I'm going to be, you know, with this certain member of my family as long as I, you know, as long as I'm alive, uh, maybe my expectations are my family's always going to be intact. Maybe my expectations are, um, you know, I'll have my, my parents until, you know, a very, very old age. No matter what my expectations are, I can cling to the hope that all things are working together for my good when I'm called according to his purpose. And that's kind of the mindset I want to go into this with. So we're going to read two passages in Zechariah 9, and we're going to close up. We're going to read verses 9 and 10, um, and it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came into Jerusalem that day in fulfillment of this passage from the Old Testament. He came in the exact way that the Old Testament said he was going to come. He fulfilled everything, all of the prophecy to a T, everything that was ever written about him. And he came in a public way to be able to come to the people and say, today, you know, there's no more of that, shh, don't tell anybody. There's no more of that, let's, let's keep it between you and me. And that's how Jesus was, remember. You know, people would want to go and he'd say, don't tell anybody because something bigger is happening and it's, the time is not yet. And he comes in a public way to say, here I am. I'm fulfilling these things that you've been looking for forever, but not in the way you think that it's going to be fulfilled. He came out on a colt. And the things that Jesus brought is Jesus brought, I think, two things. One, he brought peace. He came on a colt to show them that he's not coming in uh, as, as you know, a war leader and going to bring them more turmoil in their life and, and more conquering. He came in to bring them peace. And we know that that peace comes when he dies on the cross and is a sacrifice for our sins. He brings peace between each one of us, each one of them, and the Father and His standard of sinlessness. He came in to bring peace. The last thing that I want to share is that He came, and look in that last verse, it says, His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is for us. This is for us. Because remember, Jesus' ministry, a lot of it was to the Jews, and there was a time where it was only for the Jews. And Jesus, when he came, he revealed that it was for everyone. Not just the people chosen by God, but everyone who would believe on his name could now be saved. 
Jesus opened that up that day and brought everyone into the opportunity to be able to enter into a relationship with him. That's a beautiful thing for us. So as, as we leave here, my challenge for all of us this morning, myself included, is um, to understand that our expectations um, are just a part of who we are. We're always going to have expectations. We're always going to have unmet expectations. And God will always do things in ways that are higher than our ways, different than our ways, and better than our ways. And our response to that should be in an understanding that we trust Him no matter what's happening around us. When things go crazy and it feels like the world's caving in around us and everything's falling apart and everything we've worked so hard for and built for and this beautiful life that we've expected and we've built up in our minds is gone, we have to understand that God has something better for us. Because if Jesus would have come in that day and those expectations of the political and social leader were met, Jesus would have been a wonderful political and social leader. And then Jesus would have died. And then everything that he did would be changed. And everything that he did would probably be written down and we'd have record of him. And he would have had his time, like all the other kings and all the other religious leaders. But praise him, it was different. It made a world of difference for us. It made a world of difference for those people. So we have to trust him in that. So let's pray together. And Father, I thank you so much for your word. And uh, man, it's just a reminder this, you know, this, this past week as I've been thinking through this and planning and reading that oh, there is so much there. Lord, it's so hard to be able to, um, to, be able to understand everything because there's so much in your word. It's, it's, it's like mining. It just it continues and it continues. You continue to find the, the, the truth in it and you continue to find the goodness in it and uh, the beauty in it. And Lord, there's so much that, that we still don't understand and there's so much there for us to continue to learn and to grow. But Lord, I do pray um, that as we've walked through your word this morning that, um, that Lord, that you've worked and that you've convicted our hearts, and that you've drawn us closer to you, and that uh, the truth of who you are has been proclaimed today. And we pray right now as we um, take communion together and celebrate that aspect of um, your time with your disciples when you initiated this, that it would be a glorifying time to you, and that we would always connect with you through this and remember your sacrifice for our sin on the cross. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.